everyone, I'm Mike Ward and welcome to Conversations in Healthcare, a video series brought to you by DRG, part of Clarivate. In this uh, series, we are currently looking at the COVID-19 pandemic and the numerous challenges that it is posing uh, to the healthcare industry. And we're looking at how business leaders are actually sort of, you know, managing uh, the, those challenges. So in line with this, I'm delighted to be joined by uh, Gil Van Bokkelen, uh, who is the uh, founder, chairman and CEO of Athesis Inc., uh, a publicly quoted clinical stage by a pharma company uh, that's headquartered in Cleveland, Ohio, and um, is focused in the field of regenerative medicine. So underpinned by a stem cell uh, technology platform, uh, Athesis is discovering, developing, and manufacturing therapeutic programs targeting neurological, inflammatory, and immune indications. Uh, the company's off-the-shelf um, uh, stem cell product, Multistem, uh, is currently being evaluated in several clinical uh, programs, the most advanced being a phase three clinical trial for treating uh, uh, stroke patients. Uh, However, after showing some promise uh, to treat patients with acute respiratory distress syndrome, the company has just uh, started enrolling patients uh, in a phase two, phase three study of COVID-19 uh, induced ARDS. So uh, Gil, uh, I hope you and those you care about are keeping well and uh, thanks very much for, uh, for joining me. Oh, thanks Mike, it's a pleasure to be with you today. So uh, firstly, what what have been the most uh, immediate impacts of the pandemic on on your company and and its employees? Well, it's it's really like many other companies. It's it's affected us operationally at multiple different levels in the organization. So first of all, we we had to shift gears and modify the way we were doing a lot of things. So a lot of work is being done remotely. Uh, people that can work effectively from home are strongly encouraged to do that um, while we're trying to maintain a conservative approach to minimizing physical interactions with one another while the, uh, the numbers and the pandemic continues to grow and spread. Uh, fortunately, there was a lot of technology available that we had in some cases already implemented. And so we were able to make a pretty good transition to accommodate the current reality, which is trying to work effectively remotely and minimize large group gatherings or face-to-face -face meetings on things. I think that um, internally within the, the, the umbrella of Athersis as a whole, we've actually, I think, adjusted quite nicely to um, the things that we had to modify in order to be able to keep rolling along and keep advancing our key programs and our efforts. Um, outside of Athersis, we've also been impacted in the sense that many of the hospitals that we work with have been fundamentally hampered by what's going on in COVID-19. So our, our clinical focus, as you had alluded to earlier, is really in the critical care space. So whether it's patients that have suffered a debilitating stroke or patients with acute respiratory distress syndrome or some of the other critical care programs we have, our focus from a therapeutic standpoint in the advancement of our off-the-shelf cell therapy multi-stem is to treat patients that are in the hospital, frequently they're in the ICU, and uh, are in really bad shape. But many of the hospitals and their ICU operations have been fundamentally impacted while COVID-19 has, uh, has emerged and continued to grow and spread. And that's because they've had to devote a lot of their 
internal operational resources and their ICU beds and everything else to just dealing with the fundamental aspects of that, that crisis, that pandemic and, and the associated problems. So unfortunately, many hospitals have had to limit the clinical trial participation or their operations that are devoted to other clinical trials that they've been involved in. And that's become a widespread phenomenon and uh, has become a bit of a problem. Uh, thankfully, the FDA has actually been very accommodating in terms of working out practical solutions to help companies continue to advance their clinical programs. But operationally, it's, it's been a big challenge for a lot of hospitals. In fact, some cases, hospitals have had to shut down their participation in ongoing clinical trials. In other cases, they've had to limit their participation in new and emerging clinical trials. Um, so it's, it's had a widespread impact for many, many companies, for many patients, obviously, and for many programs. Uh, so that's been a bit challenging. So, so specifically, is, is there anything that you've been able to do to sort of you know, mitigate you know, that, that risk in, in your own sort of your clinical trial uh, advancement? Yeah, we have, we have been able to do some things. So as I said, the FDA has been very pragmatic in terms of allowing companies. So uh, for example, if you have a requirement for follow-up visits in the conduct of a clinical trial, um, most trials, in fact, very few trials, I would say, had anticipated the need to do some of those visits remotely as opposed to doing them in the doctor's office or in the hospital setting or whatever it might be. Um, and so the FDA actually had to develop a perspective on how were they going to allow companies to do some of those follow-up uh, follow visits or some of the things that needed to be done in a way that allowed programs to continue, clinical trials to continue, while at the same time preserving the integrity of the data and of the process as a whole. Um, but I think that the FDA has done an excellent job in that regard. Many hospitals have done an excellent job in that regard. Some hospitals are still trying to figure it out. And I think that, uh, that everybody's trying to adjust to that constraint or that set of constraints. Um, but obviously, we working with our CROs and, and uh, in the various clinical trials that we're focused, focused on and our key opinion leaders and clinical experts um, have made adjustments about how certain things can be done. And I think we've done a very good job of that. But the reality of it is, is that some clinical institutions are still impacted by what's going on. Uh, and, and so they've had to either scale back or even in some cases, temporarily suspend their participation in clinical trials um, just because all of their resources are being devoted to, or, or a substantial amount of the resources are being devoted towards dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. And, and do those delays in any way kind of compromise the sort of, you know, the, the protocol that you originally agreed? Um, yeah, they don't really for, for compromise the, the protocol. Um, basically what it does is it, it forces companies to adjust their timing on things. So obviously, if you're planning on having a certain number of clinical sites up and running in your clinical trial and your ability to either get those sites up and running or in some cases keep those sites up and running because they've had to temporarily suspend their participation in, uh, in certain clinical trials, then th that, that strings out your timeline. So you have to adjust to that from an operational perspective. Um, we've already stated publicly on multiple occasions that our timeline is going to be impacted for our, for example, for our stroke study or other studies that we might be involved in, and uh, and we're adjusting to that. At this point, I think it's still a little bit too early to tell exactly what the impact will be on some of the clinical trials we're running. Um, we're still working with some of our, our clinical partners to adjust to certain types of things, but I think that this is commonplace now among many, many, many companies in the industry that are struggling to deal with the ramifications of COVID-19 and their efforts to continue to advance their clinical programs in a constructive way. So the, 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 there's really no major 
adjustments to the protocol per se, but as I said, some of the, the follow-up visits or the way those visits or assessments are actually conducted, that's changed a bit because some things that can be done remotely are being done remotely. And, uh, and I think that's, that's a reasonable path for companies and the FDA and the clinical institutions to take. And how has sort of social distancing sort of, you know, impact your ability to actually make uh, you know, sort of the stem cell um, products? Yeah, well, thankfully, our contract manufacturing partners have been uh, have done pretty well operationally. There has been some impact from time to time, uh, particularly earlier on um, during the crisis. But I think that uh, lately, actually, things have progressed um, uh, pretty effectively. And I think that these companies have done a good job of adjusting their own internal operations and, their own, and the way that they address certain types of things operationally. So uh, we're, we're grateful for their continued support and their hard work at allowing us and, and supporting us in terms of our efforts of, of keeping uh, advancing in our, our core clinical program. Right. So, so before we talk about um, you know, your efforts to, to help COVID-19 patients, uh, it'd be great if you could just sort of so describe, you know, the platform that actually is underpinning uh, your clinical programs, you know, this, this, the multi-stem. Yeah, I'm happy to. So basically, we work with a special class of stem cells that's that are isolated from healthy consenting donors. And the donors that uh, provide us with the starting material for our product are typically in their, their mid-20s or so. They're healthy consenting subjects. They go undergo a full uh, health evaluation, medical evaluation. And the cells that we obtain from these donors are a special class of cells that have some very unique properties. Uh, namely, most people and most of your viewers are aware of the, the, the history and the concept of traditional bone marrow transplantation, where for every one patient you want to treat, you have to find a matched donor that basically has the same tissue type and that you can, as safely as possible, uh, take material from that healthy donor and, and transplant it into the cancer patient uh, that needs that bone marrow transplantation, typically following radiation therapy or chemotherapy, which wipes out the blood and immune system. That's not a very scalable process. That has been practiced, actually, the original bone marrow transplants were done in the late 50s and early 1960s. And so many patients over decades have actually benefited from that early work that was done. But again, that process is not very scalable because for every one patient you want to treat, you have to go out and find a matched donor. And in some cases, you have to search through many, many, many potential donors before you actually find uh, a donor that is a suitable fit or a suitable match. In some cases, for people with rare tissue types or, or uh, other constraints, you may not even be able to find somebody that's an appropriate match. And that's obviously not a, a good situation for anyone to be in. Our technology is actually at the opposite end of the scalability spectrum. So the special class that we work with, which are referred to as multipotent adult progenitor cells, can be isolated from bone marrow. Um, they can also be isolated from, uh, from other tissue sources, but bone marrow is how we do it clinically and for the, the production of our product. But once we take a small amount of material from a single healthy consenting donor, we can actually grow these cells up because they have very unusual growth properties. Unlike traditional bone marrow uh, for bone marrow transplant purposes, those cells can't really be expanded. The cells we work with can be expanded. In fact, we've shown we can grow them up in very large scale and we can produce the equivalent of millions of clinical doses with a modest amount of starting material from a single healthy consenting donor. So in essence, what we've figured out a way to do over many, many years is take this special class of cells, 
grow it up using a variety of state-of-the-art biomanufacturing techniques and technologies. And the other nice thing about the cells that we use that essentially comprise our product uh, is that they, we can administer them just like type O blood. We don't have to tissue match, we don't have to immunosuppress the patients that we're trying to treat. So it combines the very powerful combination of, of uh, scalability in terms of being able to produce a lot of material from a single donor and do that in a very careful, um, diligent, uh, very thorough kind of way, and also to administer the product in true off-the-shelf form. In fact, our our cell product is literally stem cells in a vial, which are maintained in frozen form, and they can be administered very simply and efficiently um, when needed. All you have to do is remove the vial from the freezer, thaw it, and then transfer it into an IV bag of saline, that stem cell solution. And, and so the nice thing about it is, is that we've, we've been able to combine what we believe are the ultimate in scalability with ease of administration, and that also couples with some other very important aspects of the product, which is the fact that these living cells are dynamically responsive to things that are going on in the body. So when the body is in trouble, when there's a problem, whether it's from a stroke or an acute respiratory distress syndrome, which is the, the leading cause of death among COVID-19 patients, or other programs where we've shown, for example, in trauma, where we've shown the ability to actually have an impact, um, the, these cells, can home to sites of tissue damage, inflammation, and injury, and dynamically respond to what's going on in the body to downregulate the hyperinflammatory activity that might be occurring, which is very problematic and prevents the patient or, or can limit the patient's recovery, and at the same time, stimulating key reparative mechanisms that help the body heal and the patient recover much more effectively than they might necessarily be able to do on their own. So it really is a powerful combination of several different things that uh, we're attempting to utilize and focus on these critical care indications that are all uh, significant areas of substantial element medical need and where we think we can have a substantial difference and benefit for patients. So you mentioned that the, the, the cells, you know, they, they sort of get to, to, to the site where, the, where, where there's a problem. What, what is the sort of the, the, the mechanism of action? I mean, what are they upregulating or downregulating? Yeah, well, um, so first off, in some cases, they do go to the site of action where the site of the injury is. In other cases, they may go to other key organ systems that are really playing an important role in the body's response to that initial event, whether it be the stroke or the injury or whatever it might be. Um, so I'll, I'll, and it gets directly to the mechanisms of action. So the nice thing about these cells is it isn't just one mechanism of action. It's actually a whole series of mechanisms of action, which we've come to understand and, and really uh, deeply be able to characterize after many, many years of work with, with dozens of outside independent expert labs across a variety of different disciplines. So let me give you a couple of, of really important examples. So one of the things that we and, and other labs, uh, other research teams discovered going back a few years ago is that the immune system plays a fundamental role when certain types of events happen in the human body. A really good example is when a patient suffers a debilitating stroke. Turns out that when somebody has a serious and, and devastating stroke, the brain starts signaling to other parts of the body, specifically to the immune system, and um, one key component, which is the spleen. Spleen actually acts as a repository or kind of a warehouse, if you will, for immune cells. And most of the time, those immune cells are just sitting in the spleen not doing anything, they're waiting for a signal or a set of signals that we hope never get sent because those signals only get sent when something really bad just happened and, and the body is, uh, is in uh, 
has been compromised in some way. But when a patient has a stroke, two signaling cascades start to activate the peripheral immune system and those immune cells in the spleen. And basically over the first couple of days after the stroke has occurred, it triggers a massive hyperinflammatory response because essentially the immune system thinks the, the brain or the body is, is under attack, if you will. Well, that hyperinflammatory response is very, essentially a, a, a hyperinflammatory tidal wave, if you will, can have devastating consequences in the brain because the brain and the central nervous system does not like inflammation. When those immune cells get mobilized and they leave the spleen a couple of days after the original event, they head up to the brain, they cross over into that area where the stroke occurred, and then they create this very hostile hyperinflammatory environment, which results in the expanded loss of brain tissue that might otherwise be rescued or saved if that didn't happen. Well, one of the things that we know multi-stem does is that when we administer the cells within 36 hours or less of when the stroke has occurred, we have lots of evidence that shows that the cells actually, many of the cells go to the spleen, they downregulate that, that emerging hyperinflammatory cascade before it gets out of control. And at the same time, these cells start stimulating key reparative mechanisms so specific cell types like regulatory T cells or M2 macrophages or, or other cell types that are really playing a fundamental role in helping clean up the damage and actually initiate some of the key reparative processes that are very beneficial to the patient's recovery over time. And the way that they do that, which we've documented and characterized extensively, is through the regulation of a whole range of cell types and key biological pathways that we know that these cells dynamically react to, respond to, and regulate. So in contrast to a traditional drug, like a traditional pharmaceutical, which is designed to do a very specific thing, one very specific thing, or say an antibody, which is also designed to bind to one very specific target or antigen, these cells actually do a whole series of things, which makes them very, very powerful. And that's one of the reasons why we believe they've shown such promise in dealing with things like stroke, with acute respiratory distress syndrome, and some of the in other indications where we've done an extensive amount of work. Okay. Um, I mean, just with your one follow-on, um, you know, one of the advantages, of course, if you're very, very specific in your target is, you know, that's where, that's where the, sort of the, you know, the drug is actually you know, having an effect. Whereas if there are sort of potential sort of, you know, multiple targets, is there not a sort of you know a danger that um, you could have sort of you know, off-target uh, effects, which means that you know, the patient actually will you know, maybe sort of suffer uh, you know some other um, uh, sort of reaction to to to, to the drug that that wasn't expected. Yeah, well, we've actually we've not seen any evidence of that. We've conducted years and years of preclinical studies in a range of different models. The interesting thing about these cells is they're innately biologically wired to follow the cues that the body is emitting saying, hey, here, there's a problem here. We have, uh, we have an issue and we need help. And then these cells basically respond dynamically. Now, it does beg the question if you had, so one of our clinical programs that we recently got authorization from the FDA for is in treating trauma patients, where the same thing that happens with stroke uh, actually happens in trauma patients where the patient undergoes a serious trauma it actually initiates that hyperinflammatory response. And based on the preclinical work that we've done and what we believe we'll be able to show in our clinical trial is, is that when we administer multi-stem, we can downregulate that hyperinflammatory cascade. 
and actually upregulate the key preparative uh, processes and mechanisms that will help the body recover and deal with that, that event that just occurred. And, and, and we're not thinking about this in the context of only one specific type of trauma. We think it could be generally applicable to trauma that occurs in these types of, of situations. Now, it, you, you raise kind of an interesting hypothetical question, which is, hey, what if somebody had a trauma and had a stroke, right? What, what would the cells do? Well, the, the, the kind of the cool thing biologically is the mechanisms in terms of the body's response are actually pretty common to both of those situations. The first thing is to launch this massive hyperinflammatory response. Uh, and we also know that stimulation of these key repair pathways, whether it's a stroke or whether it's a trauma, so stimulating some of those cell types that I talked about earlier, or stimulating some of the other pathways that we've characterized, um, that we believe that those are, those are central to and beneficial in terms of the patient's recovery and repair over time. So the, the multidimensionality, if you will, of the mechanisms that these cells are dynamically responding to and helping to regulate, um, it, it's, not, it's not being done blindly, it's actually being done in the context of what is happening in the human body at the time. And so we think that that is a very appropriate thing, and frankly, one of the ways where we can actually maximize benefit and maximize recovery. Now, that's very different than what we've done historically with traditional drugs, where you give the drug, it binds to a specific receptor, it does one very specific thing, and if, if, if you aren't able to achieve therapeutically what you need to through the regulation of that one specific target or that one specific thing, well, then you have to do something else, right? So the fact that these cells are responding dynamically, I think there's lots and lots of evidence to show that that's a really good thing. And frankly, that's one of the reasons why we've been able to have an impact in some very challenging clinical indications like stroke, like ARDS, other places where, frankly, standard of care hasn't changed much in many, many years or even in decades in some cases. And in fact, I mean, you know, Athesis was, was working uh, on an approach you know, to ARDS uh, or to treat patients with ARDS. Uh, you know, before uh, you know, sort of COVID um, nineteen had emerged, what what had you seen previously that <clears throat> had given you confidence that you know it might be useful, uh, and, and what progress have, have have you made on that front? Yeah, it's a great question. So, uh, like many companies, we started working in animal models, and we started working in animal models of acute lung injury and working with some leading outside independent labs that uh, were well positioned to use their many years of expertise, in some cases decades of expertise, and animal models that they had developed to reflect what happens when uh, the lungs, which is the primary, um, primary focal point, if you will, of what happens in patients with acute respiratory distress syndrome, but, but ultimately the impact is kind of throughout the entire body. But essentially, we started off working in these uh, large animal models, so working in, for example, pig models or sheep models, and looking at, hey, if, if acute lung injury occurs in these well-established animal models and we administer multi-stem, um, what happens? And what we saw consistently from those models is that when we administered multi-stem in those models or when the researchers uh, administered multi-stem in those models, that there was a clear impact on, on uh, enhancing recovery so, and as we characterize that mechanistically, again, over years of work, we showed that that was because these cells were, they were going to the lungs, uh, or in some cases, other parts of the body, and downregulating the hyperinflammatory cascade and upregulating these various uh, mechanisms and, and cell types that were helping the body recover from the original incident. 
And then once we had, had uh, done some work uh, in multiple models and we presented that at leading scientific conferences, we were approached by other groups and some clinical groups that said, hey, we want to work with you in an area that's very challenging in the field of lung transplantation. And so we were actually approached by some of the leading specialists. We've had the privilege to work with the top three leading lung transplant centers here in the United States, uh, the Cleveland Clinic, which is right up the street from us, Methodist down in Houston, and, and also UPMC in Pittsburgh, which is really um, kind of the birthplace, if you will, of uh, many of the key developments in solid organ transplantation, thanks to Dr. Starzl and his team many, many years ago. And so the, these researchers presented us with a problem that they had been struggling with for many, many years, which is if they needed to perform a lung transplant for a patient because they had severely compromised lung function and there was no other way to deal with it, um, the problem is, is that they would have to wait for a suitable donor uh, to emerge. So typically with somebody that would be uh, uh, tragically killed in a, in a trauma or a car accident or other things that might happen, and would have to have consented previously to be an organ donor. And then they would harvest the lungs from that consenting organ, organ donor and then transplant those lungs into a matched recipient. But the problem is, is that that's not an instantaneous process. First off, you have to have patients kind of at the ready. And then when, uh, when a donor emerges, you have to be able to efficiently harvest the lungs and then uh, prep for the, the transplant. And that whole process can take a fair amount of time. And, these lung transplant specialists came to us and they said, look, we have a problem. 75% of the time when we've isolated lungs that we could transplant into somebody that needs a lung transplant, the lungs are showing severe inflammation and they become compromised before we can actually do the transplant process. And they said, we think based on the work you've done with multi-stem in these animal models, that if we perfuse these donor lungs with multi-stem, that we might be able to save these lungs and that would allow us to do more transplants and help many more of these patients. Because as you can imagine, it's terribly frustrating for them and for the patient to get all teed up to do a transplant procedure only to realize that, you know what, the lungs have already started to become too inflamed. We can't do the transplant because that would essentially be like giving the patient arts. And you can't do that because then you're basically putting them immediately into critical care. You've got to put them on a ventilator in the ICU and that's just, you know, that's a bad outcome for everyone. So we said, okay, well, we'll uh, we'd, we'd uh, love to work with you in that regard. And so we worked with them to support a, a, a program, a, an experiment, a, essentially a research program where they were taking donor lungs that had already started to become high, uh, highly inflamed, had already lost their capacity to, uh, to achieve normal oxygenation because when the lungs become inflamed, the, the, the alveoli walls become thickened and the lungs the alveoli themselves actually become filled with fluid. It's a process referred to clinically as edema, and then they can't absorb oxygen normally anymore. So basically, uh, what they did was they said, okay, we're going to take one side of the lungs and we're going to uh, perfuse them with multi-stem, and the other side we're going to perfuse with saline, so actually down into the lung tissue, and then we're going to see um, what happens. And as it turns out, the sides that were treated with multi-stem showed dramatic ability to actually recover. It dramatically reduced the inflammation and improved the oxygen, uh, oxygenation efficiency of the lungs. And so they, after conducting the study, they came to us and said, hey, we would, we'd like to actually run a clinical trial where we start perfusing donor lungs with multi-stem before we actually do these transplants, because we think that will dramatically improve the odds of success and it will allow us to save many more lungs um, and treat many more patients. 
And we thought very carefully about that, and we decided ultimately that clinically it might make more sense. So fortunately or unfortunately, there's a limited number of lung transplants that are done every year in the United States. It's somewhere around 1,500 to 2,000 lung transplants based on my recollection of what the, the numbers were going back several years ago. And so we consulted with the, uh, the clinical experts and uh, in, internally and thought about it, and we decided, you know what? maybe it would be better for us to go after patients with acute respiratory distress syndrome because it's the exact same phenomenon. The lungs are becoming highly inflamed. The patient's not able to get enough oxygen because the, uh, the, the alveoli become inflamed and thickened and the lungs have started to fill with fluid. So what if we focus on treating patients with ours? That affects a lot more people in the United States and around the world every single year because ours can be caused by a whole range of different things. It can be triggered by influenza, or as we're seeing now throughout the world, it can be triggered by coronavirus, like with COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2. Uh, we've seen it previously with things like um, uh, MERS and uh, in the original SARS strain that er er emerged a few years ago. It can be caused by trauma. Actually, trauma results in acute respiratory distress syndrome in a meaningful number of patients, and it can be caused by a range of other things that create this hyperinflammatory environment in the lungs that ultimately forces the patient to be placed on a ventilator. So we, we made the decision that we were gonna go after ARDS as a, as a first clinical target because it affects many more people and we thought that might provide a transition ultimately into the lung transplant space uh, as we've been discussing with these specialists. And we ran a clinical trial, an exploratory phase two study that was randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled. And sure enough, this data showed that when we treated patients with a single dose of multi-stem within the first few days, after they had been diagnosed with ARDS and placed on a ventilator, that when they were treated with multi-stem, there was a very substantial reduction in mortality. There was an improvement, very rapid improvement in many patients in lung function or pulmonary function. In fact, uh, just to give you kind of one example of that, 45% of the patients that had very serious ARDS that were treated with multi-stem uh, were off the ventilator within seven days or less. Whereas under best available standard of care, only about 20% of the patients could actually achieve that. So we were seeing this very rapid improvement in lung function among these patients. We saw a corresponding dramatic shift in terms of the number of, of ventilator-free days or, and, and also ICU-free days for these patients. And then very encouragingly, in the early part of this year, we completed the one-year follow-up results from the trial, which showed that when patients were treated with multi-stem, there was a dramatic improvement in terms of their quality of life in the weeks and months and one year period where we followed them up after they had been uh, treated either with multi-stem or with placebo. The patients that got treated with multi-stem were doing much, much better in that one year follow-up than the patients that were treated with saline, which was the, the alternative under best available standard of care. Everybody was blinded throughout the one year assessment, the one year follow-up. So neither the patients, the doctors, or anybody else knew who got what until after the study was completed. This was really the first time that uh, in a long time where anybody was able to show, hey, we can have an impact on treating ARDS patients for which the mortality rate is very, very high and for which standard of care is very limited. And basically the clinical solution historically for many years has been get the patient on a ventilator, keep them on the ventilator for as long as possible until you can actually uh, help the patient turn the corner and then wean them from the ventilator and then hope that they get on a reasonable path to recovery. 
Um, so the fact that we actually made such a significant difference where we dramatically reduced mortality and improved lung function and improved on hospitalization parameters was very exciting. And it resulted in our third fast track designation from the FDA, um, along with stroke and one other clinical program, which was very encouraging to a lot of people. And ever since then, we've been moving very quickly and have now actually gotten FDA authorization to conduct a pivotal study for treating ARDS patients, specifically for COVID-19-induced ARDS. And so we've been very focused on that. Yeah. So, I mean, if we could talk about that. So, um, I mean, you know, it's clear, um, you know, the work that you've done on ARDS. I mean, that, the, the evidence so far, that was, that was still in a sort of a fairly small sort of patient group. So it wasn't yeah, it was an exploratory statistically powered, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, it was an exploratory phase two study. It wasn't really, it wasn't really constructed for statistical validation. It was really more constructed to say, hey, um, are we getting a consistent pattern of evidence of improvement and recovery in the patients getting better? And, and clearly we achieved that. And the FDA agreed with that, which is why they gave us fast track designation and, and have worked with us to actually get this pivotal study authorized so that, um, so that we could move forward on that front. So, so, so with the, with the COVID nineteen, because clearly, you know, ARDS is one of the sort of the, the sort of big challenges uh, with, with COVID nineteen patients. Could you sort of just describe uh, sort of you know the sort of management discussions, you know, as the as the pandemic was emerging, and and you realised that you know you were sitting on you know, a potential sort of therapeutic you know um, uh, solution to, to to a problem that was you know sort of gripping the world. Yeah. Well, it was kind of interesting the way it unfolded. So um, we were actively preparing. So we announced our one-year follow-up results from our study in mid-January. It was out at the annual JP Morgan uh, conference out in, in San Francisco, which now seems like eons ago, basically. But uh, it was shortly after that that we made the announcement about the very exciting one-year um, outcome results and quality of life improvement among patients that were treated with multi-stem uh, after being treated with ARDS that um, we got an inquiry and, a, and an invitation to actually meet with the leadership at BARDA. And uh, the leadership at BARDA had correctly anticipated that what was going in, on in China was in all likelihood going to have a global impact or an impact here in the United States, which is really what they're kind of focused on, as well as many other countries, uh, countries around the world. And of course, we've seen it is now a global phenomenon. We're all living with it uh, in ways that I think none of us could really envision or imagine even a few months ago. So we got this invitation from Barta, who reached out to us and said, hey, uh, we're concerned that this might be headed our way. Um, we've actually been looking for a number of years for therapeutic interventions that might actually be relevant for treating patients with acute respiratory distress syndrome. And frankly, nothing has emerged that has shown that it can actually help in this kind of a situation. And so when we saw the results from your program and the fact that the FDA had given you fast-track designation last year, just a few months ago, and the more recent one-year follow-up data, they actually became very interested in that because they realized, you know what, um, this might actually be an important part of an overall strategy for, uh, for helping us um, deal with not only COVID-19-induced ARDS, but uh, one of the things that I think the leadership at BARDA recognized was that this is likely to happen again. We've already seen it happen over the past few years. It happened with SARS, with MERS, with H1N1, which was a particularly nasty strain of the flu, all of which were resulting in patients with acute respiratory distress syndrome, uh, patients becoming critically ill, many patients that died. But obviously, this time around with COVID-19, it's happening to a scale, on a scale that is just, frankly, none of us could imagine this even a few months ago. 
Uh, and, and so they reached out to us and said, hey, we'd like to have a conversation with you about potentially collaborating with you and supporting your efforts to advance this program. And, uh, and we've been engaged in that process actually over the past few months, which has been in some ways an encouraging exercise and in some ways uh, kind of a frustrating exercise because things haven't actually been uh, culminated exactly the way that we were hoping it would. We thought we would already be through the process and done to this point. It's still ongoing, so I can't actually provide a lot of detailed comment on that. I can say that there's been a lot of focus on development of vaccines. There's been a focus on development of antivirals. All of that's appropriate. And also a development on diagnostics and, and other things, supportive technologies. Um, our belief is, is that our technology is really one of a very limited uh, set of things or number of things that has shown real clinical promise in dealing with patients that are seriously or critically ill with ARDS. And that is the leading cause of death. I mean, here in the United States, we've now see, seen about 145,000 patients as of this day that have died from, from COVID-19. And the vast, vast majority of those patients have died from COVID-19-induced ARDS and related complications that, um, that we believe we can help effectively treat. And around the world, of course, the numbers are much, much bigger. And so it's, uh, it's been a very, um, on the one hand, it's gratifying to know that we have a technology that we believe can help a lot of patients. Uh, it's a little bit frustrating that we can't get things to move faster um, because of some of the, the entities that we're dealing with and some of the, in some cases, it might be political constraints and other cases that might just be uh, bureaucratic inefficiencies or other things that are basically getting in the way of this. But the reality of it is, is we're as convinced as we've ever been that our technology can help a lot of patients, can really make a difference for these patients that are becoming seriously or critically ill and, and help them and, and by extension their families. And so we're committed to that, and we're doing as much as we possibly can to advance this program in the most efficient way possible and to make a difference. I mean, it's interesting you say that, you know, there's some sort of delays, because I mean, one of the things that's been absolutely remarkable uh, about the response to COVID-19 and, and the way that you know, industry has sort of, you know, mobilized, and, and in fact, the regulators have been pragmatic, that we've seen the sort of the speed of sort of development in sort of, you know, vaccines, yeah. repurposing of drugs, et cetera. So it's interesting you sort of saying that there, there are still, you know, some you know, frustrations around certain delays. And I'm just wondering, is there, as a management team, was there anything that, you know, you would maybe do differently um, that could have maybe uh, sort of alleviated some of, some of that frustration? Well, I think some of the some of the things that have been most frustrating for us are things that we just have no control over. Um, I'll give you a, I'll give you a couple of good examples. So. Um, you know, we've gotten obviously very deep into this process in terms of our discussions and our interactions with BARDA. One of the things that we couldn't have anticipated was that politically there was a decision made to say, hey, we're going to set up this other parallel effort, Operation Warp Speed, or we're going to set up this other initiative called Active, or we're going to let the NIH basically uh, assume governance or jurisdiction over some of the things that are being done. And, uh, and so at times it's kind of felt to a lot of people like, we're not really sure who's in charge or who's making the decisions on, on some of these things. And, uh, and, you know, for example, one of the things that happened a few weeks ago was when there was a decision and an announcement made that, that BARDA was no longer going to be focused on immunomodulatory therapies. Um, I know that in some uh, segments that decision is now being questioned and, and reconsidered. The reality of it is, is that it doesn't just make sense to only focus on vaccines or on uh, certain types of interventions 
that are not actually focused on the patients that are becoming seriously or critically ill, particularly when those technologies have already shown the potential to help patients and there is no effective standard of care for those types of individuals. So I think the, the political pieces that have been moving around, the institutional pieces that have been moving around, you know, honestly, there was no way we could anticipate the way some of that stuff might unfold, whether it be things like changes in leadership at organizations like BARDA or other things that might be happening. The reality of it is, is that uh, we've been doing our best to make sure that we're continuing to advance this, that we're putting ourselves in the best possible position to be part of the solution set. Um, and it's not honestly because we're looking to make money off this for that particular opportunity. In fact, we've already said we're not focused on it for that reason. We're focused on doing this simply because we were asked to get engaged in a process, which we did, and, uh, and essentially because we believe we can help based on the data. And a lot of other people out there that have thoroughly reviewed what we're doing are also convinced that we can help. And now our objective is just to see this to fruition so that we can actually be in a position to make a difference and really help these patients. So, I mean, one of the things we're you know, talking about speed, um, you know, back, uh, I think it was back in April, you, you, you know, announced that you were going to raise $58 million or you're going to raise some money in a public offering. You yeah. were able to raise $58 million and you closed that a week after the original announcement. Um, and yet this is a time when there's like social distancing, et cetera. So, so what were the sort of the challenges associated with that fundraising and, and what was it that you were telling investors um, that yeah. you were going to actually do with the money? Well, so first off, that some of the challenges related to doing a financing in that kind of an environment. Nobody knew for sure whether or not financings were even going to be possible. Um, the reality of it is, is that typically you have the opportunity when you're doing a financing where you meet face-to-face -face with many of the potential participants, the institutional fund managers or others. Of course, none of that was possible back in mid-April because there were statewide shutdowns in effect for many, many different regions. And in fact, it was essentially becoming a national phenomenon. So it, it had to be done in an entirely different way. So we had to work with our banking team and others to kind of think about, well, how, what's the best way for us to approach something like this? And, uh, and thankfully, it, it was actually a very smooth and efficient process at the end of the day. And so it came to a successful outcome. As a result of that, our company is now in the strongest financial position that we've ever been in, uh, in, in our history as a public uh, biotechnology company. So uh, we're in a very good position. We're able to actually continue moving forward in, I think, all the most important ways uh, that, that we're really focused on. Um, the, the, the financing was actually a big, a big part of that. And we're very thankful for the people that looked at what we are doing. And as it gets to what we told people we were going to do with the proceeds, it's exactly what we've been doing since we completed the financing and, frankly, what we were doing beforehand, which is advance our clinical programs, uh, continue to mature, uh, mature and, and expand our capabilities in core areas. We're actively preparing for making a transition that, frankly, few biotechnology companies have been able to make, which is to become a full-blown commercial company. And, and so we brought on new members of the leadership team. Um, we had a new CFO actually join us in, in, uh, in the early part of the year, who has extensive experience, Ivan McLeod, in terms of product commercialization, product launch, a uh, whole bunch of other things. We had Another addition to the team, Maya Hansen, who joined us from McKinsey, who uh, became our senior VP of operations and supply chain. Um, and she is responsible for working with the other members of our very experienced and committed leadership team to really help us prepare for this transition to becoming a full-blown commercial company. And uh, I personally am as convinced as I've ever been that we're gonna be able to make this transition successfully, that we're gonna be able to achieve the kind of success that I think few companies in our industry have been able to achieve 
And uh, in some cases, we will continue to partner with outside companies. We're actively engaged in that process with multiple companies as we speak and have been for some time. I think that can help us in some geographies and in some areas or, or even potentially in a broader geographic basis in the context of the right partnership. But the point is, is that we're doing all the things we need to do to be able to achieve that kind of success. And the financing was a big part of that. So I think that we're doing exactly, exactly what we told investors we were going to do. Uh, we remain committed and focused to, uh, to achieving those goals and objectives and continuing to um, advance our, our programs and our key initiatives. Yeah, I, I saw the, the, the recent hires and it's absolute, you're absolutely right. I mean, you are building a, a highly experienced uh, you know, pharmaceutical uh, board um, uh, around you, sort of, you know, the, the, yeah. the management team. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're excited about that. I mean, frankly, and the reason why people are, are willing to leave some of these other leading organizations and become part of our team is because they look at what we have and they say, this is a company that has the potential to make a transformational, maybe once in a generation or once in a, you know, once in a lifetime kind of opportunity in terms of advancing medicine for patients that are seriously and critically ill and where current standard of care is inherently limited. And they want to be part of that because they see that, you know what, if, if, if I accomplished, if I was part of an organization that accomplished something like that and did so much good for so many patients and, and was able to generate a benefit for shareholders in the process, um, frankly, that's something that we could all look back on as a set of legacy accomplishments and say, you know, if I did nothing else in my life, I'm tremendously proud of what I was able to accomplish on those fronts. And I think that's exactly what we're positioned to achieve. It's not going to be easy. At times, it takes longer than we want it to. And there's a lot of things that we, problems or hurdles uh, crop up and we have to deal with them or kind of manage around them. But the reality of it is, is that we have a very highly uh, talented and very experienced team that is relentlessly determined to accomplishing our goals and we're not going to give up until we actually make that happen yeah so so, so you described this you know the, the the ambition um but you also mentioned the hurdles well as a management team uh, and, and this this is this is my final question um sure. and it's probably therefore the hardest uh, you know what 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 are some of the biggest leadership challenges that um you, you currently face as you try to make that transition from you know a clinical stage company to actually a fully-fledged commercial uh, entity? Well, I think it, it, it's um, something that I'm actually quite proud of is that we've always had an organization that is able to assess um, what we know, what we don't know, and objectively take a look at how we actually figure out what we need to solve for so that we can get to that next level. Uh, and I think that, um, that keeping uh, one challenge that all organizations face, and certainly uh, it's something that we face as well, is Keeping people focused and not a lot, minimizing the distraction, if you will, particularly when there's a lot of chaos going on around you. I mean, as you can imagine, the chaos that we're all living with right now, and I know you're living with it as well and your team, it doesn't just impact our work lives. It impacts our personal lives and it impacts a lot of things going on around us. And so we, we have to make adjustments for that and we have to help each other out. And one of the things that I'm very proud of is that we have a culture where People really care about one another and they really care about what we're doing. They're deeply, passionately committed to that. And so we, we are working together to try and solve for things that address challenges or problems that we couldn't even imagine a few months ago. But that doesn't mean it's always easy. I mean, the reality of it is, is that there's lots of things that come up. It might be technical issues. It might be operational issues. It might just be, you know, frankly, psychological issues where people are beginning to feel a bit worn down and, 
and sometimes the challenge feels like it's maybe a bit too much for them. And so keeping people inspired, keeping people motivated. The, the great thing is, is that our company knows that we have a very unique opportunity to really make a difference, to improve medicine for patients that desperately need help. That is incredibly motivating for people. And so as long as they continue to keep that in their minds and, and, and really uh, part of, of their core set of objectives, they understand why they're doing what they're doing, why it's so important, and they really remain relentlessly determined to, to bring our vision of the future of medicine to a reality. But again, um, working with them to help smooth the path, if you will, can sometimes be a challenging exercise. And, and, uh, and so we're all working together to try and do, make that happen. Yeah. So Gil, look, uh, I mean, this, this has been absolutely fascinating. So, you know, thanks very much. Um, you know, and particularly, you know, that work that you're doing, you know, in the art space, uh, you know, particularly for COVID-19 patients, you know, we'll all be, uh, you know, watching that very, very closely. And, uh, you know, you've got everybody's best wishes. Uh, well, Mike, thank you so much. I really enjoyed spending time with you and uh, having the chance to talk about what we're doing. I wish you and your family all the best and all your, all your colleagues. Uh, and just encourage everybody to be cautious, wear a mask, stay safe, and uh, do what you need to do, and we'll get through this. Yeah, so great messages. So if, if after listening to this broadcast, you'd like to tune into future episodes of Conversations in Healthcare, um, follow our LinkedIn page, because that's where we're going to be posting alerts to, to future releases. Um, so in closing, I'd, I'd like to thank Gil again for, for joining us, and, and thank you, the listeners, for, for, for tuning in. So until next time, stay safe and healthy. Uh, I'm Mike Ward, and I'll see you in the next episode.